word and also as we prepare to worship him through giving let's first go to our lord and pray and ask him to work through the preaching of his word in our lives our great god and father we thank you that our worth is not in what we own what we've accomplished the words that we say the fact that we haven't done one thing or another but that it is all in christ who is your perfect joy father we thank you that Christ has worked for us in ways that we could not have even imagined. And that we grieve our sin, we rejoice in being a people who hope in a great and perfect Redeemer. I thank you, Father, for the way that you have sent Christ into the world to save us, to be the hope of sinners everywhere. And we pray, Father, as we come to your word, as we look specifically at the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, we pray that you would open our eyes to understand the truth of the gospel better, help us to be able to to identify distortions of the truth, to hold fast to what you have revealed in your word and to the leading of your spirit, to rest in the finished work of Christ for us, and to be bold as we tell other people about this great grace that you have commissioned and called us to be heralds of. Father, we pray even as we think about this and we think about how your church worked together to defend the truth and to make sure that the truths and the doctrines of the faith were rightly parsed out. I pray, Father, that we ourselves would commit to one another to walk in this faith together, to commit ourselves to each other to the, and that we would edify each other, that we build one another up in the truth, and that we would rest in Christ together. We thank you, Father, for the way you have called and collected your people and for the way you are doing that even today. Lord, as we come before you and as we pray that you will work through your word in our own hearts, our hearts are also with our missionary partners who have, been, who have gone throughout the world uh, to take this message of the good news uh, with them to places that have not heard it, where there is very little gospel presence. And Father, this morning we want to pray for our brother and sister Eric and Katie Graham. We thank you so much, Father, for their many years of service in South Africa. We pray, Father, as they prepare to receive this mission team uh, from the U.S., including their own daughter, uh, to do this short-term trip. We pray, Father, for their work, that you would be even preparing the soil of people's hearts right now. Uh, <clears throat> that as they hear the truth, that you would plant the gospel deep in their hearts and bear fruit of faith. We pray, Father, for uh, their encouragement for their protection as they go, and that they will keep all things, they will have a good attitude to work well with each other, and that you would be exalted in them. Lord, as we pray for the church abroad, we also want to pray for the church locally. And Father, this morning, on my own heart, uh, this morning has been the meeting that is coming up with the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. There are many important decisions that are being made. And Decisions also that I've been heard, that I have heard that are being um, considered in the, the Alliance churches as well. And Lord, we just want to, as, as pertains to our passage this morning, we just want to pray that as these members come together and as they consider weighty matters, that your spirit would lead them in the right way. We pray for wisdom. We pray for peace. We pray for understanding, and we pray that the truth will be upheld. Lord, we know that Christ died for the sake of making his bride pure. And we know your promise that he is going to deliver his bride to himself without any spot or blemish. 
And we know in our own lives, Father, how far we have yet to be fully sanctified. But we pray that the promises of Christ will be fully understood and realized as we look forward to the day when we will be glorified with him. We pray, Father, that we would be pleasing in your sight as your people, that we would follow your commands, that we would love you and love our neighbor as you called us to do, and that through the witness of your people, the world around us would, would see and savor Christ as their king. Lord, you also call us to pray for those who are in authority over us. Um, and as we do so, Father, with Memorial Day being here, we just want to thank you for those who have given their lives in service to this nation. We thank you, Father, for members of our own church who have, uh, who have gone and who have, have sacrificed years and have taken great risks and faced great danger for the sake of their country's calling. And we thank you, Father, for their bravery and their courage. We thank you, Lord, for the way you have protected them. And Father, even as this weekend can be very tough for a lot of people who have lost loved ones, we pray for their comfort, but we also pray that the sacrifice of Christ would be made known and exalted before them. We thank you, Lord, that we belong to an eternal kingdom where Christ is king, and we pray that, that, we would, that he would, his kingdom would be established here on the earth. And finally, Father, as we prepare to worship you through giving, I pray that we would just give with a right heart with right purpose, and that you would use what is given for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you will please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts 15, you can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 923. So Acts 15, this morning we're going to be starting the chapters in verse 1, and we'll be going to through verse 11. Now, if you don't know, I, I grew up as the son of a pastor, and as, a, as the son of a pastor, there are certain pros and certain cons. People treat you different. When they find out your dad's a pastor, they, they, uh, you don't get invited to the same sort of things that everyone else does. But one of the perks, at least for me, was getting to travel to a lot of places that we probably would not have otherwise gone as a family. Our church, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention, which if you don't know, is just, it's just a denomination organization of associated Baptist churches that are joined together for common faith and for the purpose of equipping local churches, providing accountability, equipping people for ministry, and sending and organizing missions both here and abroad. That's a really long definition, but the goal is to see the gospel flourish there through accountability. Uh, the SBC, if you don't know, it's, it's the largest Protestant denomination. It's about 16.2 million people, um, and it's worldwide. 
Now, each summer, the SBC churches and its members, sir, they send members to represent them at an annual meeting. Those messengers hear reports from the heads of all the various ministries that are supported by the convention. They consider matters of importance. They vote together to adopt various resolutions and action items. And so each year, our family used to go travel to that meeting, uh, which took us all over the U.S. And since we were already there, typically we'd basically make that family vacation. So got to go to the Grand Canyon. Another time I got to go to Alamo. You kind of get the idea. Wherever the SBC was, that's where our family vacation was going to be. But our travels weren't about just fun and games. They, there was actually serious business to conduct. In the 1970s, there was a serious drift happening in the SBC. Uh, liberalism, the kind that questioned or just outright denied doctrines as essential as the divinity of Jesus or the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible had gotten a firm grip on some strategic positions, some strategic um, leadership uh, areas, especially in the seminaries, and all that was spilling over into local churches. And it led to a, a really colossal struggle that lasted for decades. It, it was a battle for the Bible and a battle over sound doctrine it was actually a battle over what, bad, what it meant to be a Baptist. And it took decades to figure out and get straightened out. Now, strangely, my, my family actually got to be at some of those crucial meetings. And although I was too young to participate, the decisions to get back to the authority of the Bible, to defend sound doctrine from this drift, and the election of some certain key leaders had a really profound impact on my life. That's the whole reason I ended up in Louisville and met Ellie in the first place. So I had a lot. There's that's been a big part of my own life. That whole movement, which has been called the conservative resurgence, was really a profound work of God's grace, a kind of a reformation that brought the convention back to its roots, back to core orthodox convictions. And denominations, what's, the reason it's notable is because denominations like that historically don't recover from shifts like that. So I've always been grateful to have gotten to live through that, but I've also been very grateful to see God's hand at work specifically through the cooperation of faithful believers in churches who are working together for the truth. Now that is not the first time that the church had to come together to address a departure from sound doctrine and the purity of the gospel, and it will not be the last. As I alluded to in the pastoral prayer, there's trouble again in the SBC, and the decisions that are going to be made here in the next few weeks are going to be very telling about the direction that it is headed in. But this is what I'm thankful to know, that Christ is committed to the purity of his bride, and I have faith that he is working to achieve that purpose even as controversies raise their ugly heads. And that faith is rooted in the text that we're looking at this morning. In Acts 15, the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, comes under attack. This is the first big doctrinal controversy to affect the church. And it was a serious one because there were people who were saying that you could not be saved unless you kept the law of Moses. The problem with that, as we'll soon see, 
is that they were making Jesus a means to salvation by our own efforts rather than seeing him as the source of all righteousness and salvation. The gospel that these men were trying to press on the church was not a gospel at all, but a misunderstanding of the truth with terrible eternal consequences. It led to a huge debate within the church. But in the end, we'll soon see, it allowed the church to actually have a better grip on the gospel of grace, a grip which helps us understand the sufficiency of Jesus' work for us and which helps us to better define, the, define why the work of Christ for us is our only hope for eternal life. So let's begin by reading our text together. Again, if you will, please stand as we read God's word together, starting with verse 1 of chapter 15 and reading through verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Please be seated. You don't always understand the significance of certain words if you don't have a good grip on the circumstances people were in when they first said them. Patrick Henry's words, give me liberty or give me death, mean a whole lot more when you understand that he was saying those things as he was organizing a rebellion against a tyrannical government. Paul's letters to the churches, especially his letters to the Galatians and the Romans, were written particularly in response to this controversy which we're seeing in Acts 15. Part of the reason Paul writes so much about the righteousness of Christ 
and the Christian's relationship to the law and why it is that our righteousness is not a matter of our works but of the work of Christ for us, which we receive by faith, that was the controversy that drove those letters. And by, and by the fact that this distortion of the gospel was so threatening the church, not just in Antioch, but throughout the Roman Empire. It's an issue that is still very much alive today. There is just something in the heart that has a hard time accepting that we aren't saved because of the things that we do, but wholly because of what Christ has done for us. That's just hard to swallow. So this, this is a particularly important chapter of the Bible for us. Uh, the response of the church to this issue sets a benchmark for us. And it's important for us to have a really good grasp on the situation because it really helps us in how we understand and define the truth of the gospel. But besides that, and what I want to bring to your attention here as we make our way through these verses, is that Acts 15 sets a precedent for us an example to the church for how we should work together for the truth in the midst of controversy. True to his word, we see Christ preserving his flock against false doctrine, and we get a good idea of how important it is for the church to work together as we seek to uphold the truth in love. So even as we unpack the issue that is being dealt with here, this question about what the gospel is, how people are saved, we learn a lot from this chapter about how Christians and churches are supposed to work together in cooperation for the defense of the truth. And that really is what brings us to consider our main idea this morning, which is this. God has called his church to labor together for the truth. God calls his church to labor together for the truth. Now, as we unpack that together, I want to establish three things for you. First, I want to establish the issue of debate, which is specifically how are people saved? Next, I want to highlight how the church addressed this question through the cooperation of the church for the truth. And lastly, we want to look at the answer to the debate, which is simply the gospel of the grace of Christ. So let's plunge into the question here. How are people saved? When it comes to doctrine, there are matters that we can agree to disagree on. I met a, met a guy yesterday, I uh, was at Wapaka, met a guy who uh, we started talking, he started sharing his testimony to me, and then he goes, I told him I was a Baptist pastor, and he goes, well, we probably have some disagreement on some things. I'm like, that's okay. <laughs> You know, there's some things that, you know, we can agree to disagree on. I got to rejoice in him as he's telling me about how Jesus completely changed his life. And he was in jail, and God completely changed him. It was really amazing. But there are matters that are critical and essential to the faith, because without them, there is no true faith at all. The controversy that Luke is telling us here in Acts 15 is one of those former issues which we must be in agreement on, or we cannot say that we are in true fellowship with Christ and his church. This is an issue that is at the very heart of the Christian faith. It sets Christianity apart from all the other religions and all the other philosophies, all the other worldviews that are out there. This is that narrow door which Jesus says we must enter through if we are to have fellowship with God. This was not a dispute over preference. 
This was a dispute over the gospel itself. There is a reason this disagreement got so much attention, first from the church in Antioch and then from the church in Jerusalem. It had to do with this question, how are people saved? How do sinners, such as we are, receive righteousness and forgiveness from God? In verse 1, Luke tells us about how this came up. Paul and Barnabas have been back from their trip to Cyprus and Galatia for a little while now. They're in Syrian Antioch. They're ministering to the church there. And while they remain there with them, Luke says that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you see how the issue is very clear there. You cannot be saved unless you do this thing. Now, circumcision... I won't go into exactly what circumcision is, but it was first introduced in the Bible in Genesis 17 after God established his covenant with Abraham. The mark of circumcision was significant because it represented how God had set Abraham and his descendants apart for himself. Circumcision was this physical mark, this sign of the covenant between Abraham and his offspring and God and the promise he had made to him. In God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, circumcision continued to play an important role as a covenantal sign. Every Israelite male was to be circumcised when he was eight days old, and failure to do so meant being cut off from God, from his people, and from the promises of the covenant. So circumcision was vital. It played a vital role in the Old Testament as identifying as a man, identifying a man as belonging to the covenant people of God. Absolutely essential. The men from Judea who were advocating that a man had to be circumcised in order to be saved were, in effect, extending that command from the law of Moses to the new covenant of Christ. They were teaching if the law of Moses was still in effect for believers, that those who are in Christ are still obliged not just to keep this command, but the whole law of Moses, if they're to be acceptable in God's sight. Now, it wasn't that long ago that we were in the book of Galatians. I preached through the book of Galatians. And when we were there, we went into a lot more depth about what these men were teaching, the specifics of that. Uh, The Judaizers, as these men came to be known, did not deny that Jesus was the Christ. They did not deny that he was the Son of God. They did not deny that he had died and risen again from the dead or that he ascended into heaven where he now rules and reigns. They didn't deny any of that. They accepted it. Their issue had to do with the significance of why Christ died and the effect that it had in relation to the law. More than that, it had to do with how people receive his righteousness through faith. From the Judaizers' point of view, Jesus died and rose again to make us capable of keeping the law of Moses. They taught that in order to be counted righteous, in order to be joined with the people of God, in order to receive salvation from him, you have to keep the teachings of the law. So they're treating Jesus as a means to the law, as a means to righteousness, as a means to salvation, rather than understanding what the scriptures teach us, that he is the fulfillment of the law. They were teaching a faith 
plus works righteousness where we earn God's favor through what we do. They weren't just arguing that circumcision had some merits for your health. They were arguing that salvation was through the law. Circumcision was just the entrance into those other customs that were demanded by by the law of Moses. Customs which before Christ fulfilled the law were in effect, but which, having been fulfilled by the active obedience of Christ, were no longer in effect. By arguing for this false view of the gospel, they were in effect enslaving the consciences of redeemed men and women under the demands of a law that could never make them righteous. They were denying the sufficiency of the work of Christ and the gift of God's grace. Now, I cannot stress to you, as I, got, as I was working to get ready for this sermon, this is, a, this is a hard passage to preach because there's so much going on here that I can't go into. And I'm having to summarize a lot of information for you. But as we look at this, it's easy to think about this as an issue that used to be that's not here. But I, I cannot stress to you how important this issue is because the fact of the matter is that this is a deviation which is still very present, although it appears in different forms in our own day and time. I'm sure that you have all heard the word legalism, right? Legalism. Okay, I've seen some head nods. Okay, so certain things pop in your head when I say legalism. Legalism rules with an iron fist over people's consciences. It tells us that our standing before God depends on us keeping a certain list of rules. It shows up in many different forms. The Catholic Church says that we receive grace through membership and participation in the church. So you attend Mass, you say the rosary, you keep Lent, you pray to the saints, and all to earn merit and favor before God. It requires people to keep the forms of faith without even any real faith necessary, assuring people that as long as they get the sacraments, they'll still go to heaven. Meanwhile, you have other churches that teach that a person is regenerated through being baptized in their church. Even if a person is professing faith in Christ, even if they're on their way to the church to be baptized, if they were killed in a car accident on the way there, they would not be saved. Then there are those churches that enslave the consciences of men and women, saying that you cannot have fellowship with God if you wear certain clothes or watch certain movies, or if you use a certain version of the Bible. These are all deviations from the truth of the gospel of grace. That is not to say that the gospel of grace does not cause us to do certain things. We're supposed to live in obedience to Christ. The difference is what is being taught in terms of how you receive God's favor and grace in this promise of salvation. Is it faith in Christ plus what you do, or is it faith in faith alone? That's, that's what's at stake here, and it is a major issue in the church today. While all these things differ in the particulars of what they're saying concerning how we get God's favor, they all have this in common. They teach us we must earn grace, and in so doing, grace ceases to be grace at all, because grace is a free gift given to the undeserving They turned the gospel into a gospel of salvation by works, 
a gospel of self-righteousness. And Paul warns us very sharply, especially in the book of Galatians, that all who rely on works of the law for their righteousness are under a curse. God is not impressed with your good works. Works done in our own righteousness are polluted. They are like filthy rags in his sight. The only way for us to be righteous in the sight of God, the only way for us to receive that, that his judgment to say, you are innocent, is to receive that righteousness that is not our own through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Christ has not freed you to live as a slave to a list of rules. He has saved you for freedom, freedom that loves God and loves others and loves and loves to obey him because you have received a right heart. The fruit of the gospel, the works of righteousness, the works of Christ are a fruit of what he does in us, not the way we earn his favor. This is what makes this gospel that these other men were teaching so terrible and so dangerous. The law had its purpose. It was meant to point us to Christ, who is its fulfillment. But even as Christ came to fulfill the law and its demands, he came to set us free through the promise of faith. So it's a serious issue. And that brings us to our second point, the cooperation of the church in the midst of this for the defense of the truth. When Paul and Barnabas encountered these men and what they were teaching, Luke tells us they opposed them immediately. In Galatians 2 verse 4, Paul recounts how as these, he actually calls these men false brothers who were secretly brought in and slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery. And when he describes his time with the other apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem, he describes that as harmonious. He describes how they were in full agreement with each other and the gospel. But to these teachers, Paul says, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So things got hot in Antioch, and rightly so. The church was under assault. The gospel was under assault. And it wasn't just a misunderstanding. These men were effectively working to sway the church away from the truth. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul and Barnabas, we see, leapt to the defense of the faith. John Calvin has said that the pastor ought to have two voices, one for the gathering of the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Paul and Barnabas used this second voice in their dealings with these men. While I'm sure that these men thought they were doing right, they were in reality doing very wrong, and the health of the bride of Christ was at stake. This conflict, it, although we might look at this and go, wow, wow, that's easy enough. I'm sure when Paul and Barnabas started talking, they just got dropped, and they had no problem at all. Well, this conflict was not solved overnight. It actually lasted for a while. Eventually, it gets to the point where the church decides to reach out to the other church in Jerusalem to consider the matter. Luke says that the church appointed Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question in particular. The church in Jerusalem was, it's the church, the Jerusalem is where the church started. 
And the church in Jerusalem was like a mother to the other churches. It's where it all began, and it seemed appropriate to the church in Antioch to send for help in considering this essential matter. As a result, we see the calling together of the first church council. There's a lot riding on this decision, and it's impressive to me that we find the early church dealing with issues not not merely internally, but also being willing to subject themselves to the judgments and the findings of other mature believers. This is what it looks like for local churches to work together in cooperation for the truth. Now, so far in the book of Acts, we have seen the expansion of the church into all sorts of different places. As the gospel goes out and people believe and are saved, we see them being gathered together in local churches with appointed elders and pastors who are tasked with shepherding the flock among them. But even as we have all these autonomous bodies of believers, Acts 15 shows us how Those local churches function together for the sake of purity of doctrine and the sake of missions and care for one another. There's there's not separation between the churches that keeps them from doing things together. They're working together for the sake of the glory of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. As we look at the church abroad in, in, in these first years, we don't see rivalry. We see unity, even as we see distinction. We don't see competition We see cooperation. We don't see churches jockeying to be the powerful church. We see them humbly submitting to each other. This is a beautiful display of the way the church should be. It's an attitude that we should strive and pray to have here. Actually, we do that. Every Sunday, we pray for another body of local believers And there's a reason for that. One, we do that because we want to see healthy churches in our city. We want to see them in our region, in our state, in our nation, in the world. We pray because we believe God answers those prayers. And one day, by God's grace, I pray that this area will be known for healthy churches who are bound together in harmony and cooperation for the truth of the gospel. If you want to know my lifelong plan, if God forever keeps us in Sheboygan and I die here. I want to see healthy churches in this area. That's what I want to see. That's why we pray for that every Sunday. The second reason we pray for that is to kill any sense of rivalry or division that might creep into our hearts, convincing us that we somehow are better than the church down the street. We have our own problems. We're not fully sanctified yet. And we want to kill that rivalry that might creep in. As a son of a pastor, sometimes you start to think, well, our church is the only church that's worth going to because my dad's a pastor. It's like a bigger, my dad's bigger than your dad kind of thing. It's completely immature. We pray for other churches to kill that sort of thinking. Rivalry kills fellowship. It kills brotherly love. And our goal in praying for those other churches is in part to kill that sense of rivalry before it can creep in and affect us. So what I see here in Acts 15 is two sister churches cooperating together to clarify the gospel and defend the truth against a dangerous false gospel. This is a beautiful display of God's grace, unifying the body of Christ together. And it's something that we should seek to to strive for and learn from. Now, the guy I talked to yesterday, I told him I was a Baptist, that was a mistake. 
because all of a sudden he starts thinking and making certain assumptions. I, when I tell people I'm a Baptist, I'm not ashamed of that at all. But I always qualify that and say, I'm like 1700s Baptist, man. Uh, in the 17, 1707, there were five Baptist churches in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey that came together and formed the Philadelphia Baptist Association. It was the first Baptist association in America. They came together as independent, autonomous churches who believed it was essential for them to work together to hold one another accountable in matters of faith and practice and work together for the sake of the mission of the gospel. It was the first official association of Baptist churches in America, and it soon grew to include churches from all over the American colonies. And God did amazing things through that cooperation. A big part of the, of the way that American Baptist churches began to send missionaries out in droves was because of this cooperation. As they did, new trading grounds were set for young pastors to, to learn sound doctrine, and then they were sent out on the frontier to establish churches there. And there were many wonderful things established through that. It's a model that I think follows the example we see between the churches here in Acts 15. Autonomous churches working together in cooperation for sound doctrine, missions, and accountability. We are meant to rejoice in what God is accomplishing in his church and through his church, whether that's here at Grace Baptist Church or if that's down the street or abroad. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought it was important to tell us about how as Paul and Barnabas made their way from Antioch in the north to this council in the south, that they took their time to describe in detail to other believers in Phoenicia and Samaria about how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles in all the places they had gone. And as they did, Luke says, they brought great joy to the brothers and sisters. Joy, not jealousy. Joy, because the power of God was accomplishing the impossible and the grace of God was being magnified in the name of Christ. And may that also be for us. Now that brings us to our third point, actually solving this dilemma with the gospel of grace. When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, they were warmly welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders that were there. Barnabas was a familiar face to the church in Jerusalem. It's where he'd served as a deacon. Paul's miraculous conversion was still a talking point for the church there. And just as they had told the believers in Samaria and Phoenicia, Paul and Barnabas told the church in Jerusalem about all, how, about all that God had accomplished with them in these new areas. But their report didn't sit well with everyone who was at the meeting. In verse 5, Luke says that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, Luke says that these were from the party of the Pharisees. If, if you've read through the Gospels, you'll know the Pharisees were one of the important sects in the Jews uh, that were unmatched in their zeal for the law. These are, actually, these are Paul's boys. Uh, he, he had made a name for himself as a Pharisee, being unmatched in his zeal for the law of Moses. It was a zeal that had led him as an unbeliever to persecute the church prior to when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So knowing his reputation, I'm sure these men were pretty surprised by Paul's report 
about how God had opened this door to the, of faith to the Gentiles and that he had not ordered them to be circumcised and to observe the, all the laws of Moses. I don't think that they were upset so much that the gospel had gone out to the world. What I think they're upset about has to do with the relationship of the law to these new believers. They are saying that there was an obligation placed on these believers to keep the law of Moses. In verse 6, the elders and the apostles of the church come together to consider the matter. And as they did, Luke indicates to us that there was a great deal of debate. Can you imagine in the church where we've seen so much unity, so much harmony, Suddenly there's division and there's dissension and there's an argument being had between the elders and the apostles. How do we deal with this issue? The issue was complicated. It required clarification about what the gospel actually taught. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, or is it a matter of grace that enables us to secure our righteousness through works of the law? As arguments went back and forth, Luke says that Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, in studying the Old Testament, what you need to know and understand is it was all leading to this moment. To be circumcised in the flesh was nothing. God says to Israel, circumcise your hearts. And every time Israel in its own efforts failed and failed and failed. And that is what led us to the work of Christ. It's in him that we receive that circumcised heart that heart that longs and loves, to, it loves God and longs to do his will. That was the promise God had made in the Old Testament, the promise he fulfilled in the work of his son. And Peter is reminding the church here about how God accomplished that through the work of Christ. He made no distinction, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, Paul says, why are you putting God to the test? That's a serious accusation. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. If you don't know what a yoke is, a yoke is what you put on the back of an ox so it can pull a plow. It's a burden. It's work. And Peter says to them, why are you going to put something on these other believers, these other brothers, that you can't do? And instead he says, but we believe that they, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now there's more to what happened at the council. We're going to stop it there because we need to get into the details of that next week. But as we look at what Peter said, and as we unpack a little bit of this here, we need to say this, this so richly solves the problem that was facing the church. And it gives us a very clear, right understanding of what the gospel of God's grace is. 
Now, Peter, you know, he was the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He did this somewhat under duress after the Holy Spirit. Uh, he had shown him this vision, and he had no idea what was going on. And then he sees, uh, he, he, he sees the Holy Spirit sends him to this Roman centurion named Cornelius, who fears God, but who's not a Jew. And Peter, as he did, shares the gospel with him, and he scarcely got it out before God saves Cornelius in his house, and the Holy Spirit comes on them in the same way that he came on the believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It's a one-to-one relationship. And when Peter came under fire from people in the church for what he did, he explained to them that he did it in obedience to God, and they accepted it as such, seeing that God had appointed salvation not just for the Jews but for the world. The barriers that formerly prevented Gentiles from enjoying the benefits of God's covenant promises were broken down by the work of Christ. The covenants in the Old Testament found their fulfillment in him. He fulfilled the demands of the law through his obedience. Through his blood, he enacted a new and better covenant. The sign of entrance into the people of God was no longer the sign of circumcision, but the Holy Spirit, whom Cornelius and all who were in the house received as they believed, just as Peter and the other disciples in Jerusalem had received when they believed the gospel. So the men arguing for circumcision and that the, the, the Gentiles had in effect to become Jews in order to be saved were arguing fundamentally against what God had revealed in his word, in his revelation, and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Peter chides these opponents, saying, you are testing God. You are putting a yoke, a burden on the necks of these new disciples which neither you nor your fathers have been able to bear. How dare you? The law served its purpose. It prepared the way for Christ. It showed us what righteousness looked like and showed us why we couldn't meet God's standard. But the law was there to condemn us, to guard us against thinking that we could earn salvation through our works. And when Christ came, he fulfilled the righteous demand of the law through his active obedience. Though he had never sinned, he became sin, having our sin placed on him. And then he died on the cross under sin's curse and the judgment of the law so that we who have believed in him might become the righteousness of God. That's what we read in Romans 3 earlier. The work of Christ was effective to free us from the demands of the law, which were put in place because of our sin. The purpose of the law was good, but the work of Christ for his people is better. And the gift of God's grace is sufficient for you and for me. Praise be to God for that. This is the point when you say amen. I don't call for amens too often, but you better amen that one. <laughs> No longer, Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, is there Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. You receive the promise of salvation in Christ. Not you, not your works, in Christ. So Peter sums the gospel up beautifully in verse 11 when he says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as 
they will. There's no distinction between the two. God's grace covers both. The relation of the law to the gospel is complex. It's more than I can outline for you in one sermon. We're not done with this. We're, we, are, we have just touched it. But as we consider this dilemma that faced the church, as we look at the way that the church set about seeking the truth in the midst of disagreement with each other, we arrive here at the gospel of grace, which is in Christ, who calls to all and says, if any is weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is light because Christ has carried off our sin. He removes the burden of a guilty conscience from his people. He puts a new heart in us and he sends his spirit upon us so that we no longer act out of fear, but we act out of love and obedience, which is the true fruit of saving faith. So my question to you this morning is, are you trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation this morning? It's a question that even seasoned believers need to ask themselves because it is so easy for us to slip into this question of, well, or this thought that, oh, I didn't pray enough this week. God doesn't love me. You you think that his love for you has changed since he sent his son even while you were a sinner? He knew your sin. He knew your heart. And he still sent his son. Why would you think that love would change now that Christ has completed that work? Are you still trying to earn God's favor? Friend, our Lord has fulfilled the requirement of your righteousness. He has taken the curse of our sin upon himself, and he holds out his pierced hands to you and calls you to look at them and then calls you to believe in the sufficiency of his work for you, to entrust your hope to him and him alone, to cease from your striving, and to trust in him as your king. Here we find our rest. Here we find our peace. Here we find our life, our assurance, not in our works, but in the work of Christ for us. And that is the good news. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, hallowed be your name. You are holy. Your eyes are so pure, you cannot look at sin. Sin is like a shadow before the sun. It cannot remain. It is burned away. And we confess that we have sinned and broken your law. We deserve judgment, and yet you have loved us. You have shown us grace that we do not deserve. The righteousness that we need is foreign to us, and yet it is available to us because of what you've done in Christ. And that's what's brought us here this morning, Father. We don't come because we think we can earn your righteousness by going to church today. Or maybe we did come that way. But now that we've considered the beauty of the gospel of grace, Lord, give us a pure faith. 
Send us from this place in your peace with words of truth on our tongue. Help us to cooperate with each other, to love one another, to wield the truth in love and in purity, to rest in the grace of Christ. And as we go, Father, we pray that Christ, the name of Christ, would be exalted for all time and forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.